0: This is Mark Fletcher and welcome to my world. Welcome to Southern Tales, Tall and Otherwise. What are the differences between day and night, black and white, good and evil? Google tells me that good and evil are judgment based. When a person finds pleasure out of something, he calls it good. On the other hand, if it brings in misery, he calls it evil. How about when the opposite happens? good brings misery and evil brings pleasure at least for a little while and how can it be both true in one family yep the different sides of my extended family but just the same and like I say it's just a southern thing sit back and enjoy Now, tonight, we're going to start meeting some of the characters that will drive season two and three and maybe even four, if we can write that much. The first characters will describe and personify the light and the dark side of the family. It's amazing, you know, that that most of this is going on. I'm a little kid. A lot of these things I never knew about until 20 or sometimes 30 years later to me. The good didn't act all that great, and the evil were some of my favorites. They still are. Tonight, we're just going to take a glimpse at how some of these stories got started, two in particular. The finish will be in Season 2, or maybe the middle in Season 2, and the end in Season 3. Who knows? But these folks, like all the others, are part of the foundation. And I still recommend you go back and listen to the preceding episodes to fully understand everything that's going on and meet these characters. It seems like nearly every episode reflects back on something that's happened previously. Listen, these are my stories that I've either lived or heard, and while there may be some disputes about the actual facts, this is the way that I remember them, and in my opinion, every goddamn word is true. you just think that everyone and everything is good. You have no hint of evil in the world. My growing up is sort of like the Garden of Eden. I mean, to me, everything and every day was a wonderment. And as I've mentioned, my first realization that there was evil in the world and that I might even be afflicted with it came on Sunday mornings at Salem Methodist Church when the the good Reverend Norman Crittenden would like scream and holler seemingly directly at me. He told stories of hellfire and damnation and all sorts of awful things that was going to happen to me if I didn't somehow find a way to allow Jesus to swoop into my life and ward off all the evil. But I was quizzical as a kid and had lots of questions and wanted to know more. In fact, when I was six years old, I asked my parents, Who made God? Let me tell you, that question got passed around many, many times and never really answered until they told me to ask Reverend Norman. After church, he would walk past the congregation to the front door, and he would stand there and shake hands with everybody as they left the church, and and he was a good man. I mean, he he truly was. He was a man of God, and and I looked up to him in every way possible. But anyway, as we walked out on this day, my mom told Reverend Norman that her son had a question. He leaned down in his fatherly way and and, and reached out and, and, and said, Tell me your question. I looked at him as serious as I could and said, Who made God? I told you that he used to sweat profusely during sermons. And suddenly, his face got red as a beet, and he started to sweat. I don't remember what his exact answer was, but I know that he totally avoided the question, or at least didn't answer it to my satisfaction. I mean, I think he told me something about maybe needing to ask Jesus to swoop into my life a little sooner. My dad nodded appreciatively, appreciatively knowing that we had stumped the good Reverend Norman. <laughs> yeah, good and evil. My grandmother was the, was the goodest person that I ever knew, and she was a stickler for the good book and most likely made every Methodist proud. She came to live with us for a summer sometime in the late 70s. Of course, it was the hottest summer in the history of Southern summers, and her being from the eastern shore of Maryland, it was quite a shock. I was home from college for a summer and working in my brother's engineering company. I would come home for lunch and and one day I could tell that she was really upset. You see, the TV programs came on at different times in our town than they did where she lived. This in turn caused her two favorite soap operas to air at the same time on different channels. Now in the 70s, soap operas were a big deal and it seems that If you were a housewife, they were damn near mandatory. I remember when I was a little kid, all the women in our neighborhood were hiring a maid to work maybe one day every week or two. And she was getting real, real popular. And so it's being it the thing to do. You know, my mom had to have her come work for her just as well, right? Um, Keep up with the Joneses kind of thing. I remember her name was Rena. And she was an older black lady who had a great smile and disposition, and, and she was really friendly and a, and a good, good lady. I, I think she charged like $15 a day or something. It was just pretty unbelievable with my dad. It was a lot of money, you know. Um, but so so she came over, and, and my dad met with her and my mom, and and they talked about the $15 a day. And then she kind of casually mentioned that she had a list of things that she didn't do. It was a long list. It took like a half an hour to go through all the things she didn't do. It was stuff like no windows, no doors, no stairs, no leaning over, no standing up, no getting underneath stuff, no this, no that. I mean, it was an amazing list. Pop was perplexed, uh, but decided, you know what, I'll go along with it. And, you know, it'll make mom easier to live with, which, you know, Probably worth $15, right? So, so Rena was hired. And one day, when Rena was there, Pop came home for lunch. And Rena and my mom were watching their stories. Which is what they called soap operas back in the day. Now, Pop was kind of betting because he was paying Rena so much money. But, but mom convinced him, hey, you know, it's lunchtime. And Rena needed a break from all that back-breaking stuff she was doing or in reality not doing because it was on her list of things she didn't do. But, you know, Pop was suspicious. He he was smarter than most. And sometime later in the middle of the afternoon, he uh, kind of dropped in. He might have parked down the street and walked down or something. I don't know. But they didn't hear him. He come in the house. Guess what? Mom and Rena were still watching their stories. Uh, Rena never came back to our house. Oh oh wait wait. My grandmother. Okay, and and her 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 stories. So I hate it when I get sideways. So anyway. She was staying with us for that summer and realized the TV schedule was different. Then one day at lunch, she told me her frustration. I mean, she was really, really upset about it, right? Having to go back and forth on the channels and whatnot. And I said, you know, this new VCR, it can record one channel while you watch another. She just sat and stared at me. I might as well have told her the Martians have landed. It seemed like such a magical, impossible event. I thought she might be having a spell like like Uncle Billy used to have every now and then when he'd be acting real weird and everybody say, oh, he's just having a spell. But, but she was okay. She just, you know, she couldn't believe it. But back back to the two sides of the family. Really, it's four sides of the family if you really get down to, to the math of it. But, but some of them are brutally different. I mean, that's one of the parts, that, one of the points of this whole uh, podcast is that you can just, the stories are great whether they're good or evil. And we're going to learn that over over time. You know, my father, he was a man who loved his country. He loved to wear his American flag pin. And, and he fought in the big one, you know, World War II. That was the big one. And, and we had cousins that I grew up idolizing. I called them Uncle Art and Uncle Bob. So their story starts like this. It's 1966. And Uncle Art is graduating high school. Well, the Vietnam War is about, you know, it's about to get kicked into high gear, but he wants to join the Marines and fly helicopters. That's all he could think about was flying helicopters. Now, Uncle Bob is 16, two whole years younger, and he hates school. He also hates the fact that his brother Art is going to be leaving. So he goes down to local recruiting station and sees a poster that gives the details on the Join a buddy program or something like that. Basically, it says that if you and a buddy volunteer, the Marines would guarantee that the two of you would stay together through all of your assignments. Oh my God, Bob loved this idea of getting out of school and seeing the world with his big brother. So he convinced Art that's what they would do. Of course, the only way it could happen is if Bob would lie about his age and they would suddenly become twins. So that's what happened. And apparently the Marines, so desperate for volunteers, they didn't ask any questions. And everything is great. The boys go off to the Marines, and the first place they go is Paris Island. And at the very beginning of Paris Island, there's a check-in examination. Now in this procedure, it's a long line of different people like touching different parts of your body and sticking things in you and looking and listening and all kinds of stuff. And at the end of the line... Uncle Art was going first. They said, okay, son, you go down this corridor on the right. Now, right behind him is Uncle Bob. Uncle Bob gets down to the end. He's all smiling, happy, and everybody's all happy and having a big time. And they say, now you go down that corridor on the left. He stops right there and says, listen, I'm in the, you know, go with a buddy program. And I'm guaranteed to be with my buddy throughout. And they say, pal, You're in the Marines now. You're going to do it our way. You just failed the eye exam, and there's no way you're going to fly a helicopter, so you go down that other corridor. With that, 16-year-old Uncle Bob goes off to Vietnam by himself. He becomes a dog handler and is given the task of scouting, looking for the Viet Cong, mostly behind enemy lines, or in front of the front anyway. Meanwhile, Uncle Art's flying helicopters, mostly rescuing injured servicemen at the front or in front of the front. His helicopter is hit over 500 times but never comes down. Oh, and he starts a card game and makes more money playing poker in Vietnam than the Marines are paying him. So these two stories, we're going to find out how they happen. Let me tell you, at the end, you'll be proud to be American. Now... Their younger brother, Gary, he somehow snuck into Memphis State. This is 1970. Gary had no clue what went on at a university. He just knew that there were pretty good odds that he wouldn't get shot at there. You see, Vietnam was a half a world away if you were in college. If you were not, you were dodging napalm and Agent Orange in a foreign jungle, usually while it rained. I say Gary was not a serious student, and that in itself was a serious overstatement. I don't know if he ever went to class, but he managed to get grades good enough to keep him in school. Most of that, and most of everything that Gary did, was a result, directly or indirectly, of his part-time job. Supplying East Memphis with the best weed available anywhere. Now, this is funny. A friend of mine called me somewhere around the year two thousand anyway, and, and and this guy said, Hey, you know, your Uncle Gary came in and interviewed for a job. And and his resume looked really good. He would worked for several construction companies, but wondered why there was nothing listed between nineteen seventy-four and nineteen eighty-six. You think? <laughs> Gary lived off campus in an older duplex on Midland. And as fate would have it, the other side was occupied by two female co-eds. Knock, knock, knock. Gary went to the door. It was Diane from next door. Our hot water heater is not working. Could Bev and I borrow your shower? Of course, Gary, wearing nothing but a towel because their hot water heater had not ever worked, or at least that's what they said in almost every day they came over, And the three of them would soon, like, uh, be all lathered up taking showers. I mean, this is the early 70s and the end of the flower power thing, and it's all cool. And This is Memphis State at its finest, and Gary loved college life. I mean, why wouldn't you? Of course, after every shower came that natural relaxation time. Diane says, Gary, what is this stuff? Sense a million, baby. And where is it from? Well, the seed is from Columbia. But this was grown in good old Midtown. Oh, Diane grew up to be an architect. Gary didn't grow up until 1986. And you won't believe how the story ends and how he gets there. But again, that's just a part of what we're going to hear about in Season 2 of Southern Tales. Stay tuned to our website at broadneckmusic.com for exactly when Season 2 will be released. I'm already working on it, but needless to say, it will be wilder and crazier than Season 1. Get ready, world. For the liner notes this episode and all episodes of the Southern Tales podcast, please visit us at broadneckmusic.com. Here you'll find more in-depth information about the episode and maybe more about everything. You'll also find out more about our kick-ass theme music from T.R. Crooks, a little band from Paris, Tennessee, from back in 1977. And you can check, check out the email address. It's stalespodcast at gmail.com. And if you have any southern tales that you want to relate, we're hoping to have some episodes containing them. And if you have any questions that you want answered, send them to me. We'll have a question and answer episode at some point, but for now, we answer a lot of them on the website. Remember, tell your friends, or at least one person, if you like it. 20 minutes and a smile.